Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to something to wrestle with. Bruce Pritchard. Well, you know. That's not a rib. She pooted. She pooted. No, you have me. There's no box of gimmicks. Rumor and innuendo. I don't deal in rumor and innuendo. Was he there? I was there. Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to something to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? Well, after a whirlwind tour of the city of brother love, I'm doing just lovely. (laughs) The city of brother love. I like it. We want to give a special thanks to everyone who came out and checked us out at the old ECW arena. It was a fun happening and uh, Al Snowman stole the show. He was one of our very special guests that we didn't advertise or promote, but you never know who's going to show up at one of these. And he told some stories that I had never heard before. Al's made the loop, done shoot interviews, done podcasts, but he's got stories for days. Does he not? Yeah. Al Snow's got one of them dry humors that we like to talk about. And he is one funny son of a bitch. It was awesome having him there. And of course, Hornswoggle was there. Joel Gertner, Blue Meanie, Terry Runnels. We had the whole crew. And how funny was Joel Gertner? It was a great time and we can't thank everybody enough for coming out. It's always good to catch up with Swoggle, man. He's such an old school fan of wrestling, loves the show. Uh, He's listened to every episode. 
and just catching up with him and, and talking about the good old days of professional wrestling is always fun. Yeah. And he's always good for a short story or two. I knew you were going to say that, but I also knew we were going to get good feedback about our Royal rumble, 1988 episode that we did last week. We encouraged you to watch along the actual rumble match itself. Bruce, I'm digging all the old school nostalgia. What's the feedback you've gotten? The feedback I've gotten for the most part was all positive. I think that people enjoyed the watch along as did I, it was, uh, not having to do a full three hours of it, but it was fun to do the Royal rumble match and go through that. And I found out, you know, I've told the story for years about how we forgot to get someone out and I did get it confirmed. I always thought it was Rick Martell. It was Bret Hart and it was in that Royal rumble. I got it confirmed after the fact from the man that invented the Royal rumble, Pat Patterson. And you had a chance to catch up with Pat over the weekend. And, uh, you can hear more about that on our Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. And we want to tell you, we are not done with our tour yet. Uh, coming up next weekend on February 10th and 11th in Sterling Heights, Michigan, right outside of Detroit, join Eric Bischoff and Bruce Pritchard. They're going to be doing a special dirty dozen on Saturday night, somewhere in Detroit. If you'd like to attend check out facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. And don't you dare miss them at the Astronomicon. How did I do with that pronunciation? Absolutely. Hillbilly. Perfect. Astronomicon. Check them out in Detroit. It's February 10th and 11th. We've got all the details over on our Facebook. If you'd like to come meet Bruce and Eric at facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. And next week we're going to be announcing our live tour dates for Columbus, Ohio. Also WrestleMania weekend, Chicago. Finally, we're announcing information on where you can pick up tickets. And of course, San Antonio, we're coming to see you too. So we've got lots of shows coming your way this year, but first we've got Las Vegas. It's going to be Saturday night, February 24th at the house of blues inside Mandalay Bay. Tickets are on sale right now at notarib.com. Check the feedback from any of our live shows, man. We work hard to give you exactly what you want. You'll have plenty of opportunity to ask your questions, take your pictures, get your autographs, and you never know who's going to show up at one of these. And as always, we can tell stories in person when the tape machines aren't rolling that we can't quite tell here. Right, Bruce? Exactly. So check it out. Notarib.com, Las Vegas. We're coming to see you. And don't forget in Florida, we have not forgotten about you, man. St. Patrick's Day. This seems like a rib. You have an opportunity to get unlimited beer, wine, and soda, a hockey game when the Edmonton Oilers come down to play the Florida Panthers, and then Bruce Pritchard and I. Unlimited beer? It sounds too good to be true. We pulled it right out of the box of gimmicks. It's boxofgimmicks.com if you'd like to do that on St. Patrick's Day with us. But right now, we want to tell you that today's episode is being brought to you by Mattress Firm. And connecting sleep to sports isn't easy, but here goes. Mattress Firm is America's neighborhood mattress store, and it should be your goal to check out the deals they have going on every day. Their mattresses are softer than your rival team's defense, and they get a 10 out of tennis. You'll love your new bed. All right, Conrad, enough with the terrible dad jokes. Just put them aside and head on over to mattressfirm.com forward slash podcast and stretch your budget further than a gymnast before a floor routine. That's mattressfirm.com forward slash podcast. We'll be right back on the other side. You know. All right, Bruce, it's time for what everybody's here for. What happened when? 
the WWF presented main event, February 5th, 1988, the biggest show in company history. And probably the show I've been looking forward to covering the most, just because this is what we all grew up on, man. And here we are right at the 30 year anniversary. Of course, that 30 year anniversary is going to be this coming Monday. It went down at the market square arena in Indianapolis, Indiana. It aired on a Friday night and in prime time, um, that prime time piece is the differentiator between calling it Saturday night's main event and main event, right? Bruce. Exactly. And this is my first, um, man, th- this one made my, my asshole pucker. I got to tell you because it, it was prime time. It was NBC. I'm 24 years old at this point, And Vince has put me in charge of a production facility. I don't know what the hell I'm doing, but to be on NBC in prime time with a live wrestling event, the biggest event really ever to take place. In some ways, this was bigger than WrestleMania three. It was intimidating to say the least for me. The live broadcast drew a 15.2 Nielsen rating and 33 million viewers. And both of those are records for American televised wrestling. And you can actually see that being touted. If you watch this on the WWE network, they say, you know, the biggest match or the most watched match in the history of America or some such. So it's something to be proud of and that the company is still proud of all these years later. And this really is the return to prime time for wrestling as a whole. It it had been like 33 years prior to this since professional wrestling had aired on a broadcast network during prime time, right? Bruce. Yes. And so this was a huge deal and it was a partnership with NBC and also with, uh, Dick Ebersol's company once a month productions that made this all come to fruition and actually make it take place. And I think that the success of WrestleMania three with Hulk and Andre is also something that got the attention of NBC to say, Hey, they're doing this on pay-per-view. They've been doing great numbers in late night. Let's see what happens in prime time with a special. One of the things that I've always found curious about this is sort of who calls who in a situation like this, because clearly NBC is looking to pop the biggest rating. They can Vince McMahon is trying to get as much exposure as he can. Do you recall if this was a Vince idea or a Dick idea? This was definitely something that Vince had been touting since day one on the relationship with NBC. Through Dick, they were able to break into the late night network wars. And it just was something Vince kept, you know, hey, can we get a primetime slot? Hey, can we get a primetime slot? And the timing was right. It was February sweeps. Uh, Dick helped out definitely because Dick wasn't with NBC at the time. You know, Dick was doing his own thing here. So the timing was right. And NBC decided to take a gamble and try it out. Do you know if there was anybody within NBC sort of pushing against it or is wrestling so hot at the time that everybody just sees the ratings and doesn't really care what it is, or, or is there some hoity toity, uh, not that wrestling personnel at NBC? I think yes. In every network that we were ever on, there were always people from within that said, how are we supposed to sell wrestling? I mean, it's, it's the lowest common denominator. We're not going to put that on our prime time. It's bad enough. We have it on late night. 
So there, there definitely was some resistance, but those that knew and understood the product knew what it would do. And it had a proven track record in late night. As we said, first time it's on prime time since 1955, it feels like this would have been the talk of the wrestling business. How far in advance did you guys know you were going to do this? And what were some of your friends who weren't, who were in the business, but weren't in the company saying about the idea that the WWF had landed this sort of monumental opportunity? You know, this was appointment television for people, not only in the wrestling business. I I think people who had heard about this event that had drawn 93,000 people in Detroit, everyone had heard about Hulk and Andre setting the indoor attendance record already. So the momentum from WrestleMania three was still carrying over in the, the wrestling business, but just in business overall. So I first heard about it probably in October of 1987 when Vince laid it all out to us. And it was the first time that I ever sat in a corporate meeting where you had all of the department heads, you had, uh, accounting, you had creative, you had marketing, you had promotions, everyone sitting in there and Vince blurts out that we're going to take the title off of Hulk Hogan. And that was blasphemy where I came from because a title change was something only a handful of people ever knew about. So Vince discussing this, I was absolutely blown away as a kid thinking, oh my God, he just told everybody wrestling's not real. And, uh, that was, that was mind boggling to say the least. How does he announce that? I mean, just, just like that, it just blurts it out for everyone to hear. Just like that. That's what made it so uncomfortable to me going these people, these people haven't been smartened up. They don't know what the hell's going on here. Now you're telling them Andre's going to beat Hulk for the championship and that we're going to do a tournament at WrestleMania. What the hell are you thinking? Um, I didn't know the kind of leeway that was needed for marketing and for the magazine and for everything else to be done way ahead of time, uh, that they had to know. I'm glad you mentioned that because Meltzer wrote in the observer, the show aired live on NBC TV in the Eastern and central time zones and was shown on a tape delay in the Western half of the country. The result of the main event with Hulk Hogan losing to Andre, the giant was pretty well known within wrestling circles. To the point it was so well known, I figured it was a false plant. Actually, here in the Bay Area, it was not hard to know the result ahead of time because there were radio stations saying that the title switch was going to happen the Monday before the show. And on the Friday before the show, the newspaper, the San Jose Mercury, ran a story on the front page of the sports section detailing that Andre was going to beat Hogan to set up WrestleMania. And the reason this all became public knowledge was Titan had already sent the ad agencies all the info for WrestleMania four with the slogan, Hogan tries to regain his title. The funny thing is that the folks at Titan weren't concerned at all about any of this. And I guess in reality, they shouldn't have been because all the publicity and giving away the finish had to help the ratings. I know dusty would be turning over in his grave over something like this. It does go against the traditional wrestling, uh, sort of party line, Bruce. But in hindsight, I guess that makes sense. If everybody knows that the championship is going to change hands after Hulk Hogan is really a household name and he's been the champion for what feels like, I guess at this point, yeah, it is four years. 
then him losing the belt is a really, really big deal. Huge deal. And people that do know now they want to see how the hell you're going to do it. What's going to happen? What is the game plan to get you there? Ideally, you know, you have confidentiality agreements and you ask people not to say anything, but words going to leak out what so many people know and so many different things have to be done. Posters had been printed for WrestleMania. Like you said, the cable guides, they work three months out. They have to have the information. So it was a bullet that we bit. We knew that was going to happen and we hope that it wouldn't leak out to any great extent. And it did, but I think that, like you said, that added to the, to the air of the show. People are like, oh my God, I've got to see, I've got to see that they're, they're not really going to beat Hulk Hogan. And then I want to see how the hell they do it. How does Andre beat him? I've got to see it. I've got to witness history. Doesn't something like this sort of add fuel to the fire, to the anti WWF establishment within the wrestling world where they're like, you know, this isn't wrestling, you know, they've got all <laughs> this phony paper champion Hulk Hogan and he can't really wrestle and they've got these silly gimmicks and now they're just giving away the finish for it even happens. Right. And you know, the truth of the matter is, is that we were conducting business while they were trying to be kayfabe and they're trying to hurt us. So the more they tried to hurt us, it's no different than Eric Bischoff giving away the finishes for our recorded raws in the same way, the people that like Bill Watts and Jim Crockett and Vern Gagne and those that were still in business at the time, Watts wasn't in business at the time, but, uh, Crockett's folks were, were so intent on saying, Hey, they gave their business away. They gave the finish away. Uh, Andre's going to beat Hulk. You don't need to watch that. That created more interest, frankly. So thank you for that. We didn't know that at the time. <laughs> it's a happy mistake. Based on you saying you wanted to have this happen in October and you know, ahead of time, this is going to be the big angle and you know, it's going to be prime time. I mean, Vince knows this is the biggest show in history at this point, right? I mean, WrestleMania three was the biggest financial show, but this is really the coming out party for the entire company. Yeah, because you got the opportunity for all of those eyeballs on broadcast television. This isn't cable cast. This isn't pay-per-view. This is broadcast television in prime time. This was, I mean, man, this was huge. So my question here, why Indianapolis? I don't mean that as a knock of the city, but it wasn't one of your major markets at the time. It's not New York. It's not Chicago. It's not Philadelphia. Why Indianapolis? The building looked great. Uh, Market Square Arena was a tremendous building for television. We wanted it to look good. We did do good business in Indianapolis. And at the time, that was something that was already on the books. So when you look at it, you go, okay, what's on the books? Where are we for this? This is the date that we have available. We could have run anywhere else. But when you have that building... It's one of our favorite buildings to do TV in. Like if Ebersol could have run um, all the Saturday night main events in Hershey, Indianapolis, and Sacramento, he probably would have because of the way that they looked on television. That added to it. I mean, it probably if it if it wasn't Indianapolis, it probably would have been Hershey. Wow, I wouldn't have ever imagined you would have said that as maybe an alternative. 
One of the things I found interesting in my research for this show is I dug through the observer and I saw where Meltzer wrote, I was wrong about WrestleMania live tickets in Atlantic city. As of February 8th, there were only 5,000 tickets sold and about 4,000 remaining. They're actually giving away 8,800 tickets, not 200, as I had originally been told. And the place will seat 17,800 when full. I figure tickets will be gone within a week or so. Hey, Titan is as hot as any promotion has ever been in this country, but there have been quicker sellouts. Last year, they sold something like 20,000 tickets the first week as compared to 5,000 this year. So they probably wouldn't be able to fill one of those huge stadiums this time around. Atlantic city will still sell out more than a month in advance. Of course, one of my questions here about WrestleMania four, and I've always been curious about this and I'm sure we're going to cover WrestleMania four coming up here soon in WrestleMania season. Hey guys, are you looking for the perfect father's day gift idea? I was, and I found it at paint your life with paint your life. You'll get a hand painted portrait created to fit almost any budget. And it's a great gift idea for your mother, your father, or both. You see, Paint Your Life transform your photos into a one-of-a-kind hand-painted portrait done by professional artists. You can upload photos of anything you can imagine. You choose the artists and the art medium. They've even got great frames. It all takes less than five minutes to get started, and you can get your portrait in as little as two weeks. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at PaintYourLife.com. And there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money is refunded, guaranteed. And right now, as a limited time offer, get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. To get this special offer, just text the word WRESTLE to 87204. That's WRESTLE to 87204. Text WRESTLE to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. You guys went back to it at WrestleMania five, and I'm sure we're going to break down exactly why and how and who and where and when, but giving away 8,800 tickets, that feels like a deal you made with Trump through the casino. Is that right? Yeah, the, exactly. The casinos bought them. Wasn't giving them away. Right. They paid for them. And then they, and that's where, them. you know, but that's where, you know, when you read Meltzer, oh, they gave away 8,000 tickets. No, we didn't. Someone purchased 8,000 tickets in a group deal as part of the promotion and paid, you know, they pay face value for the damn things. Just so we can sort of explain the business end of this to maybe people who aren't familiar in boxing, this is commonplace. Whenever there's a major fight that happens in Las Vegas, they have what they call casino buys. So the casino gets first dibs and they come in and pick up hundreds, sometimes thousands of tickets, and they use those tickets as bait. For what the casino calls whales, meaning the high rollers, the people who are going to fly in and spend a bunch of money gambling with you. So it makes sense for the casino to sort of comp them a 300 or $3,000 ticket, depending on how much money they're going to come in town and spend at the tables. Right, Bruce? 
And we also were concerned about that as well, because the problem with that, while yes, your, your gate is purchased and yes, you are going to have a full house they regardless don't of what you do. They don't care, man. Um, they're, they're sitting there and they're, they're looking at an event and, eh, you know, maybe they're interested. Maybe they're not, they're dressed in suits and ties and they're just kind of watching the show. Ho, hum, ho, hum, but they don't know what the angles are. They're not really that invested in the show. So you run that risk. And that was something that we talked about ahead of time and thought, well, shit, I hope this doesn't hurt the aura of the show. And I don't think that it did overall. I think it did a little bit for WrestleMania four and five, but it was nice to have that money in the bank and already there sold out. Well, and so many fans, myself included, think WrestleMania five is one of the greatest pay-per-views of all time. So I don't think it hurt it. I do want to ask though, cause it is sort of shocking, I guess, in hindsight, the business is hotter than it's ever been. We're about to have the biggest primetime special. I mean, the business is on fire. And you've only sold 5,000 tickets for WrestleMania. Is there a little bit of a concern based on the pacing for this show versus WrestleMania three a year prior? And I recognize that one was a dome and, and one was not. And a lot of people would say, well, what does that matter? Well, ticket pricing was probably a little different because you can get to a bigger gate through cheaper tickets if there are more tickets. But if you've got a smaller arena, you mark the prices up. But when you see a number like this, 5,000, just, you know, six weeks out, is that a concern? No, not at all. We knew we'd sell it out and it, and it did sell out. So the Northeast, there was definite confidence there and we did do it, but we also knew that with the ticket prices, it wasn't going to be the same. You explained that perfectly because when you have a larger venue, you got a lot of tickets um, affordable tickets, if you will, family friendly pricing, as we used to like to say, that is going to accommodate those folks. And maybe for an event with limited number of seats, you're going to command a higher ticket price for people because there's fewer seats to go around. Well, and probably some of that has to do with it being near a casino. You know, it feels like if there's a small arena, say in Charlotte versus a small arena in Las Vegas. Las Vegas is charging more because they imagine, Hey, you're flying into town. It's a vacation. You're here to spend money. We're going to get your money. Not to say Vegas and Atlantic city are the same, but that gambling mentality, the higher price, the glitz, the glamor. I mean, that's where you can get the hundred dollar stakes. Sure. And also in Atlantic city, especially at this time, Atlantic city was not a family friendly environment anywhere in Atlantic city. It was, it was rough. It was on the mend. It was kind of people trying to rebuild it. Hence Donald Trump coming in with the Trump Plaza, uh, and trying to revive Atlantic city, uh, casinos were starting to put money back into their properties and trying to bring people back in. But Atlantic city as a destination was trying to bring the families back. Hence why they came after us to do WrestleMania there, hoping they could lure families into the city. Meltzer wrote in that same observer, Titan is now claiming WrestleMania three grossed 20.4 million and not 17.1 million. As I wrote in the yearbook this year, the very worst case scenario I can come up with would say they'll gross 23 and a half million, most likely 25 million. Was there any sort of 
early predictor that you guys discussed? Like did Vince have 25 million as a goal or did you ever have discussions like that? <laughs> Vince never really has discussions like that. That was something a, a lot of times, obviously that like Basil DeVito, who was in charge of the promotions department, Basil would have those discussions with Doug Sages. And yes, Vince was definitely involved and Vince wanted to know, all right, uh, where are we coming out on this? What's the bottom line on this promotion where we're going to be? So yeah, they did have those discussions. I was involved in very few of those. And especially at this time in my career, I was still a kid, um, learning my way through the television end of things. So I didn't have those discussions, but, uh, yeah, I can see, I can see that 25 million easy. One of the things that I think a lot of people sort of lose track of is back then while pay-per-view existed, it wasn't readily available. So you guys had already lined up here in early February, 161 different locations for WrestleMania four to be closed circuit. Do you remember who helped line all of that up and what that arrangement looked like with the different locations? Linda McMahon, uh, had some folks in, in the department, live events, Ed Cohen in live events would rent out, whether it be uh, movie theaters or small arenas and do all of the closed circuit things, much like you would promote a live event anywhere in the town. So where there was not pay-per-view available, we would do closed circuit. And a lot of that would fall on Ed's shoulders. And Linda kind of oversaw a lot of that from the pay-per-view side of things. It was still, you had to go and pick up a special adapter box for pay-per-view in your home. So it wasn't as easy as, as Vince later say, just mash a button. Uh, you had to go and you had to get the equipment, put a deposit down on the equipment. So you're, you're putting down like a $90 deposit and then you're paying the $20 or whatever it is for the pay-per-view event itself. And then you watch it. Then you have to take the equipment back to the cable company. So this is a pain in the ass in the early infancy of pay-per-view. I remember doing that very well, going to the cable company and getting the little adapter, um, the good old days. One of the things I found in the observer before we get into this show was a health issue for dynamite kid. And I had never heard about this. Meltzer wrote the dynamite kid also collapsed this past week in the San Francisco airport prior to last Saturday's card. Apparently at least one radio station reported that the kid had a heart attack. And in fact, that was the first word we'd received as well. In reality, it was some sort of seizure caused by stress and overactivity. He was hospitalized, but in fact has now already returned to the ring. Do you remember dynamite having a little bit of a health scare in an airport? You know what? I, I don't, I really and truly do not remember that uh, at least in this time frame. And I remember that there were health concerns with dynamite in his back and just how much longer that he had and how much longer that he could go, uh, working every night. But I don't, I, I don't remember him passing out. Let's talk about, um, the dark matches that happened for the live crowd before the actual broadcast started, uh, demolition acts beat Ken Patera, uh, Jake, the snake beat Harley race, Ron Bass beat Coco beware. The British bulldogs beat the Islanders, Jim Duggan beat the one man gang and the ultimate warrior beat Sika. Do you remember anything notable about any of those matches or anything in particular before the live broadcast begins? 
I don't remember anything other than that one hour live because I was so damn nervous and scared and I didn't want to screw anything up that I kept going back over that format for that one hour show over and over and over in my head. The dark matches were background noise at that point. It was just white noise to me and making sure that uh, cameras were ready, making sure audio was good and all of the technical aspects for going live, we're ready to go. And we got, I believe we got Vince and Jesse out there for one or two matches to do commentary on, to make sure that their mics were working, make sure everything was going good in combat conditions. But yeah, I couldn't tell you if I said, I remembered any of them, I'd be lying. So it was noise. What was your job specifically for this show? Were you a gorilla or what were you doing? I was at gorilla position queuing the show and I was at gorilla position, uh, communicating with the truck and with, uh, the announcers at the announced position. Give us some examples of things you might be saying or doing there. I know you've told us, you know, I'm doing cues, but what does that sound like? I am the last, okay. The gorilla position is essentially the last, that's the last position. That's the last place you are before you go out through the curtain into the arena. So if there's any last minute instructions, if there's any last minute knowledge they need to have before they go out there, that's what we do. So we're reminding the talent of exactly how much time they have, where their cues are, when we're going to be going to commercial breaks, if that's something that we're going to be doing during the match. But it's just that last information point. And at this time in 1988, it's just me. The agent for the match, they're they're long gone. They're either watching on a monitor somewhere. They're not sitting at Gorilla going through everything. It's They're off doing whatever it is they're doing. Uh, Pat Patterson was the agent, so Pat you know, was there. Pat probably went out and watched it live in the arena. Patterson so, was the agent for both the Honky Talk Man match and the Andre match? I think he was. Okay, so when you're in Gorilla here, you've just got like a six or eight foot folding table, a monitor, a headset, a pad, and a paper, and that's it? That's it, and my trusty stopwatch. I love that you had a stopwatch. That's amazing. Um, so how do you tell time? Well, it's just funny to me that last week you made a comment about, it's not like anybody's watching this Royal rumble with a stopwatch. And I thought, well, I can think of at least one guy who is, and now, you know, we know, Hey Conrad, you know how I watched the Royal rumble this year with a stopwatch. I did. I did. I watched it in my hotel room in Philadelphia with a stopwatch. Oh my gosh. I love you for that. Well, let's talk a little bit about what's next here because it's time for the show to open. And I've got to tell you the opening scene with the stars here doing promos against their logo backdrops is just the best stuff ever. It's what I grew up on and I love not just the standalone promo, but that they've got each wrestler sort of graphic in the background, who did those graphics for you guys? That was at this, at this time that was NBC and that was uh, once a month productions. That was Ebersol's folks that did a lot of that stuff. The Saturday night's main event and the main event was co-promotions that we did with once a month productions, which was Dick Ebersol's company. And Dick would always bring in, uh, he brought in a director for the show. He brought in a producer, Lou Del Pret, great guy. Uh, 
and he would bring in different design people and they would design a lot of the graphics for Saturday night's main event. They also did the post-production. So a lot of those graphics and a lot of those, uh, production elements were done with the once a month production folks. So that was, that was brought in and we did these, uh, earlier in the day, allowing them time to, to put them together and make it a part of the show. So all these promos that opened the show were shot the day before or the day of, cause I thought once upon a time we had talked and these were shot the day before some were, some were, it was absolutely, it was actually both some of the, I believe Hulk Hulks was shot the day before or the night before. And, uh, some of them were shot that day. So I want to say that Andre's was shot that day. When you're saying they're shot that day or the day before, is it bo- both? Everything we're talking about is shot at the building. Yes. Okay. And who would have been sort of producing those shoots? It, who's in the room when that promo happens, obviously the cameraman and someone from NBC and someone from WWF, who all's there? Vince McMahon was, was there producing all of those himself and Dick Eversall was there as well. But, um, I was in the room and at this point, man, I'm just under the learning tree watching these two guys at work, producing the talent, producing the wrestling talent would be Vince usually. And, uh, Dick would then help with direction of the cameras because it was a three camera shoot, which guys were used to one camera shoots. And here you've got, you know, everybody looking at different cameras and having different cameras on them. So Vince is producing the talent and Dick was kind of directing the talent, if you will. So the scripting, the actual verbiage that they use feels a little more produced than normal because there's lots of double meanings for stuff. You know, there's a line in here at some point in a promo where the million dollar man says, Hogan, your account is overdrawn. And today Andre is going to close it. Ha <laughs> uh, All that sort of silliness. I mean, honky tonk, man, just riffs one Elvis reference after another. This is all verbiage that Dick's people put together for him. hundred percent. Okay. And it was all, you know, it was all scripted, right? We had multiple, uh, revisions throughout the day. And that's the, the other thing that I learned from them is a revision was always a different color. So throughout the day, you knew what color, uh, script revision you had. What was the latest script revision? So all throughout the day, you know, scripts would be revised and the guys would get them and they would learn them and recite them word for word. Do you remember, um, was there a, a WWF influence on any of the revisions or was it mostly NBC just tinkering with it to get the script airtight? Vince would have revisions. Yeah. When Vince would read it and, and a lot of times, not only when Vince would read it, but when the talent would deliver it, right? If Vince didn't feel that it was coming out right now, nah, Vince would revise it on the right on the spot. You know, no, let's try this. And Dick being very script oriented, always would want to, well, as long as it fits into the rest of the story that we're telling here, he was very detailed in that this reference is something I'm going to come back later on. I'm going to have you and Jesse refer to. So he wanted to have all of that flow and make sense. You know, and and that's evident through the whole thing. I mean, even when honky talk man says something like, you're no journalist, green bean, instead of mean gene, that's not something I had seen honky do before. So 
the NBC influence is all over this. We first go to, um, after we do the opening promos, we see a standup with Jesse and Vince. And I think a lot of people are curious how this was shot. Was this against a green screen or how do you guys shoot Jesse and Vince here? Live in front of the people. That was live, live in front of the people. It, but it wasn't always live, live. When did you guys decide sometimes we'll green screen, sometimes we'll live, live. You always try live. And then if it doesn't work out, then you reshoot. No, we didn't do the ultimate stuff until 1989. No, night. It was 1988, but it wasn't until after, uh, WrestleMania four. Okay. How we started doing the, the, uh, the ultimate in the studio with the announcers. And you would do that in the studio in Connecticut. Correct. Uh, how would you describe the hat that Jesse's wearing for this show? Beauty miss. It was a revisionist of the grand wizard. I thought in some ways he kind of looked like uh, Eddie Murphy from coming to America. You know, that's exactly what I thought. I thought this is either if a Hershey kiss had a baby with a cheetah or it's something that he found oh, on the set. Uh, uh yeah. Like a, the, but the almond uh, Hershey kiss yeah. and a cheetah just got it on. And yeah. And he took a dump. That's what you get. <laughs> Uh, and then we're, tr- we're treated to what I still think is the best Hulk Hogan training montage video ever. Uh, everything about this show is gold, but this training montage is incredible. You see Hulk lifting weights and, uh, you do see some different looking weights when he's doing the bench press. Maybe you caught our episode on Royal rumble. Um, but this is to Jake's music and we get lots of questions about this. Why was Hogan's training montage to Jake, the snake Roberts entrance thing? Because it sounded cool. And it, it does. Nice. It, it fit. Did it not? It was perfect. I, I, and, and, and I know a lot of wrestling fans don't want to hear that, but it sounds awesome there. It looks awesome. It's the perfect compliment for it. But I'm sure a lot of guys would say, but that's Jake's song. He's not Jake. There's no snake. Went from Hershey is, I don't know why they wanted to use Jake's music. That's stupid. He's not a snake, you know. But it fit. It was a dark, you know, it was dark, gritty, uh, just a great video. And it gave you the vibe. It was an intensity that just made, I mean, it all came together. I don't think that that many people, other than Clint from New Jersey, uh, over there at Hershey, really picked up on that. And I don't think that you would have with that because you're watching the images on the screen. Uh, chat me up. Why is Hogan in all black and not Hulk Hogan merchandise? It feels like Vince would never allow this these days. If Cena's doing a training montage, he's wearing his never give up shit. <laughs> no kidding. Um, because, uh, the NBC folks went and shot this. This was shot in a gym in New York city somewhere. And it was, you know, a nice gritty looking gym. And it's what Hulk really worked out in. So they didn't think enough to put him in Hulkamania stuff. And we did that with Hulk too, to just make him a little bit different, but we tried, you know, later years. Yeah. That ain't gonna happen. Sell some merch. Um, talk to me a little bit about how this is put together. Is this, you know, I know you said NBC shot it. Does the WWF have any input on the way this is shot or edited or presented? Do they pick Jake's music? Is this just something Vince carves off to NBC and says, get after it. 
Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything wherever you listen. NBC did it. NBC got after it and they produced it at the post house. I'll give them a plug Beetlejuice in uh, New York city. Now I think that we did, uh, the, like the honky, we did the packages, the wrestling packages. I want to say that we put those together and that Kevin Dunn put those together, but the video, I know for sure that was done at Beetlejuice and the, um, Oh gosh, the backgrounds and the open and all that stuff that was done at Beetlejuice. What, what the fuck is Beetlejuice? I thought that was the uh, small-headed person on Howard Stern. Beetlejuice was a production house in Manhattan that once a month productions used. Not a rib. Not uh, a rib. The graphics that uh, appear before the match that are custom for each wrestler are still just my favorite thing about this, and I wish you guys still did them. We go then to a promo. Um, from the honky tonk man. And of course we're headed towards honky tonk macho man. And we saw that with the graphics and we opened with that same, you're no journalist green bean line that we mentioned. And one of the treatments that I found fun about Saturday night's main event, that's just classic main event in NBC are the, the shiny curtains that they're doing the promos in front of. And we've talked about this before with the different locker room sets on an older episode, but here there is a definite. This back, this color curtain is for heels and this color curtain is for baby faces, right? Well, yeah, you can't have heels, baby faces in front of the same curtain, motherfucker. But let me go back. You know, you're talking about the, the backdrops and the logos that we use for those. When we started in 1988, um, we started to do interviews that, that were event center things. And we had two different sets and then as time went on, probably by SummerSlam is when we got all of our ultimate stuff. So I'm going to correct myself here. It wasn't until summer that we were doing the announcers in front of the ultimate because it took us a little while to get the ultimate set up and get it just right in the studio. But then we started doing it on the road and we started having all the guys with their own individual logos and things behind them on the interview set in the event centers when we did them, but the, the curtains and all that. Yeah. You got to have different set. You can't have the guys in front of the same set of curtains. They're a heel. And that's a, that's a, an NBC idea. Yeah. That's a Richie Posner production, man. Um, freestyle for us. How would Vince pronounce ultimate? Ultimate. Vince's Cobra commander. Uh, so hockey is out next and he's got Peggy Sue with him. I love this, you know, giving hockey talk, man, a girlfriend, Peggy Sue, whose idea was that and, uh, smarten everybody up for those younger viewers who may not know who was Peggy Sue. Well, the idea for Peggy Sue was something that Pat Patterson had come up with because 
Peggy Sue was Sherry Martell. And Sherry was such a great worker, and Sherry was so damn good in the ring. But there's only so much that we could do, especially at that time, with female wrestlers because you didn't have the kind of roster that you have now with female wrestlers. You know, every once in a while we'd call Moolah in, say, Hey, Moolah, we need you to work with somebody. Who have you got? But we had Sherry, and there just wasn't enough really to do with Sherry. So we made her into a character and made her into Peggy Sue. And man, I just, I sat there and I rewound it and watched it back. Just watching Sherry dance and doing Peggy Sue. I thought she was excellent. Well, let's talk a little bit about, uh, the macho man next, because he's doing a promo here and, uh, it's kind of hard to make out what he's saying exactly because the honky tonk man music is definitely far too loud. But I love the energy. I love Macho Man's robe here. Uh, and I love that you get a different treatment for the backdrop for the baby face. In hindsight, what was off on this promo? I mean, if it was taped ahead of time, were you guys just piping in the arena stuff too loud? Or how did this come out this way? Because the mix in the truck and they wanted it to, well, you're live, you're in the arena. So of course there's going to be bleed over of music from the arena. But the mix wasn't good. And the it was the music from the truck that was playing over, and they were trying to mix crowd, and they were trying to mix music, and it just was too hot and not a good mix. Then the problem is, like now, they record so many different tracks. They record audio from the record crowd. They record music separate. Everything is on a separate track. Then, and especially when you're going live, what goes down on tape, and that's what it was going down on tape. That's what you're stuck with. So you can't go back. We didn't have savages promo clean that they could have gone back and, and mixed it right. That's what they had. And that's what they stuck with. And it just, you couldn't hear it for shit. Well, it's sort of fun here because you still get the energy for macho man and if you're like me, you can't help, but notice the subtle differences. He's pouring sweat here in the promo, but then when he comes out uh, for the entrance, he's dry as a bone, which is a giveaway that it was shot the day before, but you've actually told us once upon a time that NBC had a strategy to make sure that whatever they taped earlier in the day or the day before versus when they actually appear in front of the live crowd, they wanted to have some continuity. What was the NBC rule of thumb? Always had, uh, Polaroid pictures of the guys and would take pictures of them on the set. And then they would try and match it as they went on right before they went out for their matches. More of that was outfit. Make sure you're wearing the exact same outfit. Make sure they look exactly the same. Unfortunately, a lot of times it got, you know, things would slip by Hulk Hogan wearing a different belt. Randy Savage, as you said, being bone dry, which as you go forward and you've seen a gorilla position now. They've got bottles of water there to make sure Vince doesn't like anybody being dry in a promo. They should be sweaty. It should be glistening. And now, guys, make sure that they're soaking wet before they go out to the ring. It looks better. Isn't that weird? Going out, but what, yeah. What, why is that? Why do you look better? Or why does Vince think you look better when you're wet? Have you ever seen Vince's arms where they're like oily and they glisten? 
Thank you. It just looks better. Macho Man's entrance comes off like a million bucks, man. Uh, it's a tight shot of him with the really glittery robe. The crowd pop is there. There's um, lots of camera flashes. It He feels like a big star on his entrance here. And once they start working, the ring sounds a lot different. Um, the difference in the way the ring sounds here versus today is super noticeable. What was different about the rings here in 88 for this show versus maybe the rings during the Attitude Era, the ones they use today? The rings back in the day, I'll call them the Andre days. I like to call them the, the, the Hulk Andre days because the rings were basically reinforced and they had a big spring in the middle of them so that there wasn't much give. There were so many big guys that were 300, even 400 plus pounds that were working in the WWF at the time that there was a concern over the rings giving out. Hence, reinforced strings now taking a bump man the ring was a whole hell of a lot stiffer than most other rings anywhere else and they also used to put padding between the boards and the metal to reduce the noise of the ring if you go to any other ring uh for the most part probably anywhere else in the world you would hear a that whack, you would hear the, the metal and the boards hitting and it made a big sound so that when someone took a bump, you could hear it in the 80th row, a little bit different for TV. Vince didn't like that ultra loud sound. And they had microphones under the ring for television to hear the subtle bumps, but it was a different feel in the, the live arena. Um, the ring skirt here is still the vinyl blue, but it's got a smaller fabric skirt over it that says main event was adding the main event banner to the ceiling and the skirt here in NBC call or a WWF call who's sort of doing set design like that. That's something that we had always done. We had done it for superstars and challenge and everything, but, uh, main event, not main event, uh, Saturday night's main event. There are probably ones that helped those production values as well to get us to do it. But when Vince was doing the big syndicated shows, he had banners everywhere. Um, do you remember when and why you got switched to a full ring skirt as opposed to the smaller one that he used here? I don't remember the time frame, but I do remember Vince going, God, it looks like shit. Can't we get one that fits the whole goddamn ring? <laughs> and it was a, a pay-per-view that we were watching one day and it's like, God damn, that looks like shit. And no one had ever thought about it because they'd always just put a ring skirt up to cover up the WWF on the side, you know, underneath the blue. And it's just, you know, then he wanted to clean. He didn't want anything on there. And then now look at what they've got and the damn thing changes. So just an evolution. Another piece of evolution is the ring steps here. They're wood and not around the corner post. They're just on the side. Uh, of course, these days we see the diamond plate, you know, sort of fitted steps around the post. What was that evolution process? Like sort of similar. It is similar. However, here in Indianapolis, it was the Indianapolis ring steps and we used the ring. We didn't bring in, they had different ring crews all over the country. So you may have one ring that will service Texas. You'll have a ring 
one ring crew out in California. You'll have another one in the Minneapolis area. You'll have one down in Florida. We had one in Indianapolis. Nowadays, they carry the ring for TVs. It's you know a uniform ring. You're going to get the same ring every TV with all the same equipment. Indianapolis didn't have the new steps yet. And they had those old shitty wooden steps. And I was watching that because of Liz and just, it was a little bit harder to navigate those wooden steps. And that just was a product of where we were. Uh, Elizabeth is a major part of the act here that I don't think gets enough credit when macho man is a baby face, especially because, well, I mean, I guess even when he was a heel, his treatment of Liz got him heat. But then as a baby face, the heels could tease that they're going to go after Liz and that allowed macho man to be the hero when he rescues her. Right? Exactly. But it, it made macho endearing that he would protect his female manager. So everybody, you know, it just, it just made him more endearing. Macho man throws honky tonk man out of the ring at one point and then climbs to the top rope and comes down to the floor with a double ax handle. And it's framed perfectly with the main event banners in the background. That has to have been a shot that you guys discussed and planned beforehand of, Hey, we want to see this and here's what we want in the shot, right? No, that was luck. Really? Yeah, that's luck. That is sheer luck. And that is, well, I personally did not get along with the guy. There was a director named Matthew McCarthy. And he's a very good director. Just personally, we kind of rubbed each other the wrong way. And I was young. And I, of course, when you're, you're 24, 25 years old, you know, everything, you know, you can't, you can't be told anything because you're a genius when you're that age. So I, you know, I would make suggestions to Matthew and Matthew just knew better. Um, he was arrogant. He was very good at his job. He did NFL. He did a lot of different things and, and had shot and had a wealth, wealth of experience. But Kerwin Silfies was my guy. And I like Kerwin. And I thought Kerwin was the best director uh, other than Joel Watts that I'd ever worked with. So I fought for Kerwin. And I kind of resented when we did the main event and SNME that Dick would use Matthew to direct and to cut the show. So these were little things that Matthew would do and direct the cameraman that Kerwin later picked up. Um, but it was luck. That was just luck. Well, the crowd's going nuts for all this to the point. It almost sounds like you guys were sweetening the crowd noise, but I know it was live. So unless you did it in post, you know, before it's on the network or, or DVD or whatever, I don't know that that would have been possible. When do you remember crowd sweetening being a thing and who would have pushed for it? God, I think crowd sweetening was always a thing for a long time. I, the first time I'd ever heard of it is when I got there for syndicated matches and crowd sweetening became a thing when you got to the third and fourth hour of a television taping and the crowd is sitting on their hands. They've seen everything in the world. The last thing that they want to do is, is cheer when, Oh boy, here come the British Bulldogs again. You know, it's like, what the hell? They, I've seen them three times already tonight. So there's very little crowd reaction. You pump in some crowd reaction in post. On this night, 
this crowd was all the way live for everything we did. And they were waiting for, I mean, God, they were waiting for Hogan Andre. Savage uh, locks in a sleeper, but he lets go when he sees Peggy Sue start to get in Liz's face. Uh, he's trying to play this protective character and eventually, eventually honky finds himself against the post. And what do you know? He is counted out. So macho man wins, but now honky grabs the guitar and climbs in the ring. And Jesse has a classic line. I think this is one of Jesse's best performances. He says something like, uh, macho man is just lucky. Honky doesn't play piano. Which I thought was great. Uh, so Jimmy Hart nails Macho with the megaphone, and this causes Liz to sort of cover him to try to protect him from Honky. And Honky even teases hitting both of them or her by herself with it. Eventually, Macho Man, of course, comes back, catches the guitar in mid swing, and then chases Honky out before he destroys the guitar. And the crowd's going nuts for all of this. And Finkel announces Macho Man as the winner. We get a perfect shot of him raising his hand. And you can tell how different the business is from 1988 to 2018, because something this small got a huge pop instead of Liz holding the ropes open for macho man, like normal this time, macho man holds the ropes open for Liz huge pop. I mean, it's a little subtle. Yeah. So subtle, but good, good stuff. Um, Meltzer would write about it Uh, as usual, honky tonk and Peggy Sue put on a great show before the match. But once the bell rang, Honky was his usual dud self. Savage worked hard to carry him and succeeded in making it an only bad but watchable match. We ended the show with Randy opening up the ropes for Liz and carrying her high above his head. A bunch of symbolic BS. I'll give the whole thing two stars only because of the post-match stuff. The match itself was no better than a star and a quarter. So Meltzer didn't really like the match. He thought it was too much. Uh, serenading of Liz too much laying down by macho man to sell not enough quote unquote work rate. Those are the words he uses here. What do you think of the match? And what do you think of Meltzer's assessment? Well, first of all, I thought that the match told a great story and it was there to tell that story to get Randy over to a national audience as a baby face. We're looking for Randy to win the, win any titles here and just looking for Randy to look good. And I thought Randy looked good. also gave the character of the honky tonk man, a chicken shit heel, very easy to understand. And you've got to also understand we're playing to a brand new audience that has no idea. A lot of them tuning in for the first time has no idea who this honky talk man is and who first name macho last name man check out the boots uh-huh yeah well they don't know who these characters are so you have to you kind of have to start over and you have to explain everything that you do and it's you you have to say so these are the first time these people are watching this program so Everything you do has to be oversimplistic. So it may not be the match that Dave Meltzer was looking for, but it was the match that we were looking for for the general audience and hoping to get people to be interested in these characters tuned back in. Before we move on to what's next, I do want to circle back because you did say something in there like we weren't looking to put the belt on Macho Man. Let's talk about that for a minute. I'm sure we're going to cover this more at WrestleMania 4. We've already covered it several times before. But there's a longstanding rumor and innuendo out there that Honky Tonk Man refused to drop the title to Macho Man because he felt like there were no plans for him. 
He felt like Vince and Dick Ebersole had spent a lot of time and effort and energy speaking with Macho Man and Liz about what their plans are and what they wanted. And then he was sort of an afterthought for these Saturday night main events going back to late 87. And of course now here, um, because if you remember in late 87, that's when honky cracked him with the guitar. So he's sort of feeling the waters out for what would it take for me to go to the NWA and not drop the belt because he doesn't want to just be a quote unquote job guy. So the title switch doesn't happen here. This night, and we'll talk about all this, I'm sure, in long form for WrestleMania 4. But on this night, there were never any plans for Macho Man in February of 88 to win the Intercontinental title, right? In February of 88, no, because that's where Vince was going for WrestleMania. So we had already decided by February of 88, we're coming down to the Million Dollar Man, and we're coming down to the Macho Man in the finals. And honky tonks keeping the IC that's already established and decided by February of 88 by February of 88. That's where we're going. Exactly. So he would, we were going to be going with Savage and DiBiase throughout the summer and Vince had already gone there. So next up, we see a package that shows the false fitness from Andre attempting to pin Hogan at WrestleMania three. And this is really the sticking point for Jesse Ventura because he has always proclaimed Andre had him beat. It counted for three. And of course that's the controversy that led to the rematches. Next, we would see Andre choking Hogan from behind in the Capitol center of the prior month in January. And then of course the actual contract signing for this match that we saw at the Royal rumble, the very first one, the month prior. And that is of course where Andre dumped the table on Hogan. Next, we go to the backstage area. We've got those shiny curtains, the heel backdrops, if you will. And DiBiase is doing a promo with both Virgil and Andre. Mean Gene is your stick man. DiBiase looks like a million bucks. He's got the shiny silver suit on here. Virgil has the sleeves cut off and he's counting cash. We've talked a little bit about uh, the million dollar man gimmick in our archives. Maybe one of our best episodes ever. Uh, Whose idea was it to cut the sleeves off of Virgil's outfit? Oh my God, Vince, right away when he saw the arms on Virgil and every single thing that Virgil did, gotta show those guns, pal. And Virgil never went out with sleeves in anything. Freezing cold, no sleeves. No sleeves, God damn it. I wish you didn't wear sleeves, Vince. What was the policy for the cash he was counting on screen? What do you mean, what was the policy? How much did you give him? Where did it come from? Did he have to check it out? Check it in? Hey, that was usually, yeah, it was usually Ted's bankroll. Ted's Ted's money that he kept with him to always be able to protect the million dollar gimmick. You know, it's funny. Teddy and I were, uh, at breakfast for the raw 25th anniversary. And when the check came, I grabbed the tab and as I'm signing, I said, wait a minute. Why the hell aren't you buying this? You're the million dollar man. And then you can go to Vince later on and say that you had to buy breakfast to protect the gimmick. <laughs> Just kind of like in the old days, because in the old days, if Vince or if uh, Ted was put in a position to have to prove that he was really the million dollar man, he always had cash on him and he would do that and then bring the receipt in to Vince and Vince would pay for it. Protect the gimmick, pal. So that was usually Ted's, Ted's roll of money. We get a really fun promo here from DiBiase about how 
Andre has had the best training money can buy and Hogan's accounts overdrawn tonight. Andre's going to close it all the good NBC stuff. Uh, and then Andre says when he gets his hands around you, he's never going to stop twisting and squeezing harder and harder. And there's the end. Uh, Gene says that Andre has millions of reasons to win this match. So very well-produced, um, promos here. And I think this is probably the best series of promos that we ever had for a Saturday night's main event. Don't you? I mean, I think this show is the best promos in the history of that show. They were good. It's funny that you say that because it's also one of the first times that I kind of butted heads to me. Ted's promo was a great promo. I agree with that. But the one thing that was missing for me was everybody's got a price for the million dollar man. (laughs) And I wanted that in there so bad. And Vince sided with, with Ebersol on it. And I was like, but that character, when we're talking about introducing our characters for the first time. Yeah, that does it to the public, man, that did it. And he, they felt that these puns and these innuendos were doing it. And I, I, I said it three or four times, finally to the point where I was basically told not to say it anymore. So I didn't, I was a good boy, but, um, well, it was great. Yes. I still think that it lost the essence of everybody's got a price for the million dollar man and set the tone for what you're about to see as to why Andre, the giant sold out because everybody's got a price. Even giants, the shot that follows Andre to the ring very closely to his back. Who put that together? That probably would have been Matt and NBC. It's iconic. It makes him look larger than life. It's great stuff. And Vince and Vince, like I, I love that you said that because it was a different way. It wasn't shooting Andre from the floor, looking up. It was from behind and just seeing to me that showed the mass of everything that Andre, the giant was and just how huge and how much space he commanded. Good stuff, but uh, I don't know that Vince would have shared how much and how great that shot truly was. The million, multi-million dollar man is the way Hulk Hogan would start referring to Ted DiBiase. Uh, and he says something like, uh, he's got a lifelong profit sharing plan with his little Hulkster's brother. And he's sporting his world title belt, which is the Hogan 86, as belt nerds commonly refer to it. I think there was two versions of it, uh, an 86 version and an 87, but either way, when he comes through the curtain, he's wearing a different belt. It's the debut of the most beautiful belt in company history. We call it the winged Eagle. It's dual plated nickel and gold. It's got a logo plate with his name on it. It's got a gold tip with a couple of fans on it. It's just a masterpiece from Reggie parks. We've talked a lot about belts on the show before. Do you know who, if anybody helped design this with Reggie parks, uh, who within the company would this have been Strongbow, or who would have had a hand? Oh God, this? no, no. If, if anything, it would have been maybe Debbie Bonanza down in the art department, but, and Vince, or it may have just been something that Reggie drew up because when it came to belts, it would go to him for an idea. Do you remember it showing up that day? I don't, I, you know what? I, I don't know what the hell happened with the belts obviously it's become a bone of contention with a lot of people but i didn't even realize it until watching it much later i knew that we had 
the Andre belt, right. the really big one that we had made. And from my vantage point, that's what I thought it was, was it was just the Andre belt because we're, <laughs> we're switching the title tonight. Oh, so I, I didn't give that much thought to it. And I don't know. I, I don't know how they did it or why they did it. So you don't remember anybody in the back, putting it over what Vince or Hogan thought of it. None of that. No. Why do you think it debuted like this, where he just walks out with it and there's no sort of pomp and circumstance with every other world title that you guys would ever introduce after there would be some sort of a presentation for it. But with this one, it's just, oh, here's the new belt. Right. Well, I think that with Hogan, there were a few times like that where the title the design would change from time to time. And there was really no pop and circumstance and events. I don't think that it was all that important Yeah, at the time. It's just a new championship belt. All right, go get out there. And this will be what, what DiBiase wears for a while. Well, Hogan's out after his promo to a huge reception. And he immediately takes care of Virgil and DiBiase before he starts in on Andre and Vince refers to Andre as seven foot five. How tall was Andre really? Andre really was probably about seven foot. Yeah. Um, but w- w- with his hair, when he had the big the lion's mane, yeah. easily seven, four, uh, the head into the turnbuckle shot is once again, framed beautifully. So shout out to your man who you don't like who directed it. Uh, and then Hogan does a stomp spot on DiBiase on the outside that I really loved because it causes Ted to throw the money in the air. It comes off like a cartoon. It's just a fun visual. Is that an NBC influence as well? I don't remember seeing that otherwise. No, that's a Hogan influence. That's just being in the right place and having a professional like Ted DiBiase to work with. Vince make refer- it larger in life. Vince referred to Hogan's winding up punch routine as Hogan's quote unquote Sunday punch. That's an old line that may need explaining for some of our younger listeners. Explain what a Sunday punch is. I have no idea. What the hell's a Sunday punch, Conrad? Oh, you know what it is. Come on. You, Come on. Go ahead. You punch him and he's out cold. He doesn't wake up until Sunday. <laughs> That's pretty fun stuff. It is. How, know. how would, uh, how would dusty describe it? Baby lithium. I'm going to hit you on Tuesday with my Sunday punch. What's that you say, baby? Honey, you're going to be out until Sunday. That's why I call it my Sunday punch. Cause I am the second most recognizable athlete in the world. If you will. Second only to brother love. Unbelievable. Um, Hogan climbs to the top rope and much like flair made a signature spot. He gets slammed off the top by Andre, but then Andre misses the headbutt to the mat. And it's the first time Andre is off his feet. Uh, so two big things to talk about here. One, you guys were certainly making Andre look like, uh, he was the immovable force or whatever gorilla called him. He's not leaving his feet. Is that. Obviously it's to sell that he's a giant, but was there a concern about his ability to get up and down at this stage of his career? No, not really. The, it was all about Andre. The giant only goes down when it's a big impact. He ain't taking a lot of bumps. Hulk Hogan doing the flare spot with the slam off the top rope. That's not something he did very often. And it feels sort of out of place to see Hulk Hogan climbing to the top rope. How does this come to be? What'd you think of it? Well, I'll tell you how it came to be because it's a lot easier for Andre to get him up there than to pick him up and slam him Yeah, and felt that it looked better, but he got up for the boss. The crowd is chanting for Hogan like crazy. When Hogan is, uh, in Andre's choke, you've told us before that Vince really liked the visual 
of Hogan being choked from behind by Andre. So you could see his hands around him, but at the same time, you got facials for both guys. That's the reason for the choke from behind, as opposed to the front, right? Exactly. And you can see the maniacal eyes with Andre. Fuck you. So you, you get all of that in one shot. You get to see Hogan kind of writhing in, pray, in pain and gasping for air. It's sort of fun to watch this match back. And if you haven't already, or you need to watch this this week, go find it in your WWE network. It's under the Saturday night's main events tab. It's February 5th, 1988. It's only 49 minutes, but it's arguably the best hour of wrestling. You're going to watch this week, this month, maybe this year. Um, and you know what, Conrad, you and I talked earlier this week and we were talking about how last week we did the Royal rumble 1988. And I had made the comment that, wow, that whole card, that whole presentation, in my opinion, didn't hold up well 30 years later. However, I remember telling you, I said, well, I watched the main event and start to finish that show held up 30 years later. And I still think it was a great show. No, it was a great show. And, and I encourage everybody to watch it and you'll see a different Hulk Hogan here, man. Um, I know that sounds crazy, but you, when you see Hogan running wide open into the turnbuckles, it's something to see, man. Uh, Andre would then use the big body slam, some chops, a headbutt. And a chokehold to really tell a great story. And I know this isn't going to be a Kenny Omega match. You know, I get that, but they're telling a great story here. And the crowd is into it. Like nobody's business. There's huge Hogan chance. And Andre then tries to do the big boot on Hogan, but loses his balance and falls over in the process. Meltzer would make a comment about that, that when Vince saw him stumble and fall over, he probably saw $25 million fly out the window. Obviously that's not the case, but it does show Andre in a different light that maybe he's not this dominant heel. What'd you think of Andre falling over on the boot spot? Well, look, I mean, for us in a perfect world, when you look at it, you go, Oh God damn, man. You know, Andre's not looking strong when you take it for what it is too. And you look at it, you go, okay, well maybe Hulk Hogan is such a, uh, dominant opponent that maybe he's got a chance with the giant that he's even got the giant stumbling. You can spin any negative into a positive and you have to look at it that way. Uh, they looked at it exactly that way because the crowd doesn't miss a beat in this whole thing. Um, Hogan climbs to the second rope for a clothesline and it works. He gets Andre down. But again, this is the second time we've seen Hogan climb the ropes. He does the leg drop and then he makes the cover, but Hebner isn't making the count. Instead, he's worrying with Virgil who grabbed Hogan's leg earlier. We get a couple of headbutts from Andre and then a hip toss that Vince calls a suplex and Andre makes the cover and Hebner counts one, two, three, despite Hogan very clearly having a shoulder up at one. And again, the shot here was done perfectly. NBC captured everything you needed to see. It was framed awesome. Uh, and immediately after, of course, Hebner raises Andre's hand and the crowd is booing loudly. Howard Finkel announces that Andre is the new heavyweight champion and mean gene is immediately there for the interview. And instead of using a full mic cube, it's just like a clip on with one side. And Andre announces that he is surrendering the world tag team championship to the million dollar man. 
and the crowd is booing this as they snap the belt as Virgil snaps the belt around the million dollar man. Uh, I just think this is some of the best stuff that's ever happened because everything you needed to have happen here was executed. Uh, Meltzer would write, all I can say is that I hope whoever came up with that finish got a nice bonus in this week's paycheck. They accomplished what they set out to accomplish and presenting pro wrestling was obviously not in their plans. They got the title from Hulk Hogan without him having to do a job. Andre wasn't hurt. WrestleMania was set up. And most of all, they ended the show with an angle so bizarre that it diverted everyone's attention away from the few weaknesses in the show. Most of all, the sleight of hand finish distracted everyone and stunned them long enough to where there was no threat of a riot. And that was a stroke of genius because doing a screw job title stealing from a baby face as over as Hulk Hogan could have easily resulted into an out of control situation. High praise from everybody. We haven't gotten to the big twist yet, but what did you think of the match up to this point? Was it what you expected? Is the crowd reacting the way you want? What sort of sticks out to you about this match as you watch it back 30 years later? I enjoyed the hell out of it and just watching it and seeing two, they were the two biggest stars in the world be able to go out and tell that story, a very simple story. And when you put the producer hat on and you think about telling this story to people who maybe haven't watched wrestling in 10 years, 20 years, whatever it is, I thought it was masterful and very, just very easy to understand. And it was emotional. You felt it. And every emotion that you wanted to hit, you're happy, you're sad, then you're pissed at the end. It was all done in one, however, 10 minutes. Excellent. It really was excellent. Um, Meltzer would write, nobody expected Andre and Hogan to have a good match. In all honesty, Andre couldn't have a good match with anyone in this business. He appears to have lost a good deal of weight since his last appearance on Thanksgiving. He plays the heel role great with his facial expressions, but he has no business wrestling with his current physical condition. Was that a concern? Were you guys concerned about Andre's weight? Did you tell him to lose weight between survivor series and here? And were you concerned about his ability to perform in the ring? Or did you think we could put enough garnish around it and make it work? Well, we were concerned for Andre's health in general, but Andre was losing weight just to feel better. And as far as his back holding out and him holding out in general, yeah, there was always concern and we wanted to make sure that he was doing whatever he could for longevity. And I don't think that there was ever concern that you'd make it to WrestleMania four at all. The next day on Titan cards in Boston and Philadelphia, DiBiase appeared and was billed as the WWF champion. But on that weekend syndicated shows, an announcement was made that the title would be held up. And, uh, obviously we're going to be set for WrestleMania four. Let's go back to the ring though, because once the announcement is made, uh, these guys, the heels start hightailing out of there. So Virgil, DiBiase and Andre are out of there and Hogan is still dumbfounded in the ring and he has his back to the ring. He's watching the bad guys scoot away with his world title. When all of a sudden behind him, we see something we didn't expect. It's not just one referee, but there's two now and they seem to be arguing with each other and the commentary from Jesse and Vince really sell this. Is that Dave Hebner or is that Dave Hebner? How can there be two Dave Hebners? These guys look just alike. The guy on the right is Hebner. No, the guy on the left is. 
I can't believe we're looking at two Dave Hebner's. I don't know that this would have come off as well, Bruce, if we didn't have Vince and Jesse really selling this. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. Now here, here's the little insight. I'm doing the gorilla position and Vince comes up to me and says, are you set? You got everything you need? I said, yes, sir. He goes, you know what we're doing in the, uh, Hogan Andre match. I said, yes. So we're switching title. And he says, do you know how, do you know the finish? I said, nope. He said, do you want to know the finish? And I said, no, I want to watch it. I just want to see it play out. I said, very well. And he walks out. So when it happens, I'm watching it live and now I'm watching it as a fan and seeing all of this develop and absolutely mesmerized because it was so freaking good. And in my opinion, this one match, this one finish goes down in history as the greatest of all time. I totally agree. And and that's the reason I want to encourage everybody to watch it, whether you've seen it recently or it's been a long time, or you've never seen it, go find it on your WWE network, Saturday night's main event tab. Uh, February 5th, 1988. It's only 49 minutes. Raw is three hours. This is a better investment. Um, Hogan grabs both guys by the collar and he even remembers to turn them towards the hard cam, which is smart of him. And he's going back and forth. Which one of you is it? And then eventually one Hebner punches the other and then kicks him while he's down. Well, that obviously reveals that's the heel referee. So Hogan gives chase and picks him up over his head, gets a running start and throws him into the aisle where DiBiase and company were supposed to catch him, but they miss him completely. And Hebner takes one hell of a bump to the floor. Was he okay with this? Yeah, he was fine. It was a hell of a bump, (laughs) but, uh, thank God, whoever got their hands up, either Andre or DiBiase, they, they kind of slowed him down a little bit, (laughs) but holy shit. Yeah, he went flying, man. It was like a magpie boom, over the fucking heads. And they slowed him down a little bit, but God bless America. Not enough. I wouldn't want to take that bump. He came back and he was as happy as could be, Earl Hebner was. Um, of the match, Meltzer wrote, of course, the referee in the match was supposed to be Dave Hebner. In reality, the ref who played the heel for the night was Earl Hebner, Dave's brother, who up until a few days earlier had worked for the Crockett's as a referee. So as Vince and Jesse exclaimed about there being two Dave Hebner's, the nation stood in stunned silence. The heel, the heel Dave Hebner Earl then tossed Dave out of the ring. Hogan then picked up Earl, the Pearl over his head and tossed him over the top rope on his way out of the ring. DiBiase and Virgil were supposed to catch Earl, but Hogan threw him too far way over their head. And Earl took a nasty fall outside of the ring. Don't get me wrong. Meltzer writes, everything worked so well. It was scary. I'm figuring that the $25 million gross for WrestleMania four now may be a conservative estimate. So if Meltzer's putting it over this strong, you know, it's good stuff. How well, it was the, good stuff. How did the signing of Earl Hebner come to be? We had just seen him on Starcade and some other shows. Uh, I believe he was even a part of the bunkhouse stampede just a few months prior to this or a, a month prior to this, maybe two weeks prior to this, but here he is. Um, how did this come to be? And, and 
whose idea was this evil referee twin referee concept? Well, as far as Earl and, and I don't know all of the specifics, but I'll give you what I've heard and what, you know, the, the scuttlebutt, if you will, was then and kind of the, uh, eavesdropping in on conversations. Earl had been looking to come in. Dave Hebner had been with the WWF for a couple of years at that time. Both had been referees and worked for Jim Crockett promotions in the mid Atlantic area prior to that. But Earl was looking to come in and Earl wanted to see if there was a job to referee, uh, Dave wanted to get out of refereeing and wanted to become an agent on the road. So Dave, I believe made the suggestion to Vince go, Hey, I would like to make the move out. I would like to become an agent. And my brother Earl, who happens to be my twin would like to come in and be a referee. So maybe, you know, I could move here and we could bring him in. And as legend goes, when Vince heard that he had twin referees, like, okay, don't tell anybody. He came up with this idea for this finish and a way to do it and just wait until the time was right. And the time was right to bring in the evil twin. Now, the part that I never got about it and I would fight with Vince and he was ultimately right because we just did it for a long time. We didn't have either of them referee on TV. And then Vince was like, ah, just put him out there. And we'll say we got the good one. So there was no more explanation after the twin referee. And all of a sudden, Earl's just in there refereeing. And it's like, okay. And for a long time, we referred to Earl as Dave Hebner. Right. Um, after the fact. So there just wasn't any follow-up or really any more explanation beyond what we did. When we it's come, weird. When we come back from commercial, the Hart Foundation is in the ring and Strike Force is making their entrance with their tag titles. And Vince throws to the back saying, Mean Gene Okerlund is standing by with Mean Gene. Which <laughs> I'm sure if he was uh if he was to hear Michael Cole do that, there would be a bitch fest from hell. Hogan is in the back crying and breathing heavy, yelling. How much money did they spend on the plastic surgery? Never in my wildest dreams, Mean Gene, would I think I'd get ripped off by a penny pension two-timing referee. How much money did he spend to pay off the referee? When I turned around, they were identical. Identical! Just unbelievable. Uh, and then they look at the replay, and he says, Look at the shoulder, brother. The referee was paid off, brother. Look at the $100 bills flying out of his pocket, brother. Just over the top, really great stuff. And, uh, that sort of wraps up the show. It ends with what feels like the middle of a tag team match, but literally as they go off the air, you see Bret Hart drop the fall in the middle of a sunset flip counter to strike force. Uh, and that's the end. We see the graphic up there for once a month productions and, uh, the copyright notice from Titan overall. Uh, the promo at the end, the way the show goes off the air. Could you critique that? Are you pleased with that? I was very pleased with it. I thought it was good. It told the story and you, you got to feel the emotion of Hulk Hogan and you know, the multi-million dollar man. Uh, it, 
it told the story. It, it was great. I thought it was terrific. The only part I didn't like, which again, would never happen today. As you said, Vince throwing, you know, let's go to mean Gene with mean Gene. And also at the very end, Hogan walking out and Jack Lanza just standing there watching chilling. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, that never would have happened on my watch, but, um, it told the story, man. It set the stage. It, it really is one of the best angles in the history of professional wrestling. Was there ever any worry about vacating the title or, or was everybody really confident that a tournament concept would draw at WrestleMania four? You know, there wasn't as much concern about the tournament concept because Vince felt that Hulk Andre three is was what was going to sell WrestleMania. And that was the rubber match. Hulk had won the first one. Andre had screwed Hulk in the second one. Now they're going to meet for the third and final time. That was the big sell of WrestleMania. And that's what Vince was really counting on. It drew a 15.2 rating and 33 million viewers. And that's the highest rating for a wrestling show in television history. Uh, to compare it to the NBA finals of the same year, it did 21.7 million viewers. So the 88 finals with the Lakers and the Pistons, I mean, two primetime teams, they only got 21.7 Hulk Hogan and Andre got 33 million. Uh, all in all, this has to be a huge success for everybody. This same night, ABC is airing new episodes of full house and Mr. Belvedere CBS is airing a new episode of beauty and the beast and main event beats them both. So it wins the primetime hour and it has to feel like something NBC wants more of right, Bruce. Yeah, they were ecstatic with it. They, there were still the naysayers. There were still those that were saying, ah, you know, it was a fluke. There was nothing else on, but man, we kicked ass and they really couldn't deny it. At the end of the day, they had to look at it as a huge success for the network and for the WWF and you just, you know, come on, you can't deny it. No, you can't deny it. It was absolutely awesome. I recommend you go check it out. And I recommend that you ask your questions on Facebook for next week's episode, which is going to be about the undertaker. His 1995 his 1996 and his 1997 are coming to you next week. And you can ask questions on Twitter at Pritchard show. We asked you if you had any questions about main event and here we go, Bruce, are you ready to rapid fire? Some of these I'm ready. Um, John Etherton says he was at a Fresno state basketball game and it flashed across the scoreboard that Andre beat Hogan. Did you guys expect it to be mainstream news like that everywhere? Yeah, we did. And we fed it out everywhere here. Okay. Here's a little insight that we used to do after pay-per-views back in the day. And after something like this is we would always do a news feed that would go up on the satellite roughly five minutes after we went off the air with the highlights of the pay-per-view so that news news media could pick it up and do things like that. And with this being in prime time, we did the same thing. Um, did any other networks do a bid for the WWF back then, or was it always just NBC? At this point, it was always NBC because of the relationship with Ebersol and Saturday night's main event. Uh, Gary wants to know in terms of headgear, where do you rank the thing on Jesse's head in this show relative to Hogan's fist fucker helmet? Well, uh, definitely. They're both going to be in the top five of headgears. 
Dan wants to know, hypothetically, if DiBiase did pay to have plastic surgery done on the twin referee, where would that plastic surgery have been done? Uh, plastic surgery twins are us. Uh, Jimmy says, not a question, just a story. I was a kid in elementary school and we had a current events project due that week. And I wrote it on Hulk Hogan versus Andre. And I cut out a picture of the TV guide and wrote an essay on it and presented it because it was real to me as a child. Hashtag real fan 40 years. I think this is what's so cool about wrestling. So much of us grew up on it and that's what makes podcasts like this fun. But the idea that kids are writing essays about the match, that's got to make, you know, everybody in the company get a kick out of that. Right? Hell yes. But you know what? When I was in, in high school, a freshman in high school, I took speech and every Friday we had to get up and do an impromptu speech about a current event. And I, I hated it. I hated speech. I hated doing this in front of the class. You'd get a newspaper and you'd have to pick a story. So one week I didn't have it. And she put me in a room and with the newspaper said, you've got to come up with something. And every Friday night we had wrestling in the Coliseum. So I just went out and I cut a promo about tonight's main event at the Sam Houston Coliseum. And then every Friday I would talk about what was happening, uh, in wrestling, so yeah, it's, it's a part of our life. And, and I love that. Moondog smash writes any memories of the fictional backstory of the Hebner twins written for the WWF magazine, for instance, and I may be confusing the details. The magazine story had an antidote about the evil twin taking out a girl that the good twin liked and being rude to her or some such silliness. That still happens to these days. I think with the Hebners. <laughs> Uh, Jason wants to know, was there ever a counter by JCP for Earl or did they even know he was gone? I have no idea. I, I doubt they even knew that he was gone. Lee wants to know, hypothetically, if Johnny Ace sang Hulk Hogan's real American theme song, what would that sound like? I'm a real American fight for the rights of every man. Vince has bigger arms than you, and I like to oil them too. Stranger Than Fiction has a question we've covered before, but I want to bring it up again because we get it a lot. A question for this and most Saturday night's main event. What was the thought process for not having the biggest match go on last? Oh, that's, that's simple because when you have the majority of your audience is in the heart of the show. So you, a lot of times you'll build and you want to be able to tell your story. So you tell your story in the middle and any aftermath that you want to get in afterwards, that's, that's where you do it. But for the most part, well, it's for, time, it's time too, because if you're, if you're going right. late night, you want to air stuff before people go to bed. When you watch exactly. Saturday night live on NBC, all the good shit's front loaded. The second half of Saturday night live is not as good as the front stuff. The stuff they have the most confidence in the stuff they think is the strongest stuff. That's what they start with because they don't want you to change the channel or go to bed. Ding, ding, ding. Um, Joe wants to know why did the show end during the foundation and strike force match? Was the, that's a good question. I guess. Oh. Was there a timing issue? It feels like at one point you can literally see the referee bend down and tell them to go home. Cause they immediately go to that spot. Well, and frankly, it didn't end. It did go all the way through. Yes, Vince said goodnight and the credits rolled, but it also stayed up long enough and you did get the one, two, three on air. You definitely did. Um, there was no commentary over it, but you got it. And yes, it was a timing issue and a 
they were supposed to go out and just go right into the finish. And they started doing a spot and it was like, guys, you got to go home. But it, it did. It was one, two, three black. Uh, Jason wants to know, did Andre ever fart in Hulk, on Hulk Hogan's face when he was doing the sitting spots? It feels like Andre would have gotten a kick out of this. Of course, we've heard the Andre taking a dump on bad news Brown story, but do you remember there ever being any in-ring ribs with Hulk and Andre? I imagine that there probably was at some point in their career. So Andre used to like to fart and hold people and make them enjoy the essence of Andre. What was Dick Ebersol's opinion of Andre and vice versa? Any good stories involving the two? Uh, mutual respect. You know, Andre didn't like a lot of people from outside of the business, but Andre did like Ebersol and he, um, they respected one another and would hang out and drink from time to time. And Andre liked to just get Dick drunk and put him to bed. Dusty cannons writes. I was a one, I was a one year old in line with my dad. The day of this match, the legend goes, there were 10 people in front of us when the box office sold out. My question is, does Bruce know when the show sold out? Was it the day of or weeks prior? And has my dad been just full of shit all these years? Sorry to tell you, your dad's full of shit. I was going to say, I don't think this was a sellout. There are pictures floating around of Andre holding up the belt or he's got it over his shoulder and he's got his right finger in the air and you can see behind it before you guys did all of your digital improvements. There are empty seats in the arena. Well, no, the empty seats were where the hard cameras are. There you go. But, Um, but they, but those were not for sale. They were blocked off for the camera. Yeah, they were blocked off for the hard cameras and they were obstructed views. So we didn't sell those in those days. And you called those camera kills. Yes. Now, hypothetically would behind the banner, like when you guys would hang the banner for TV, you wouldn't sell behind there, right? Try not to, but sometimes buildings would because they wouldn't know that you're going to where the the banners are going to obstruct. Right. Well, that makes sense to me because I've actually had that debate a lot. And some people say, oh, that wasn't that night. That was, must've been a house show because you know, the old, the old wrestling legend is, oh, we were sold out every night, brother. But that picture of Andre with the new belt on his shoulder, I mean, it's from this show, but there are empty seats, but that makes sense. If it was a camera kill, it's not to say that they couldn't sell the tickets. They just didn't. Right. And nowadays when you have the, the camera kills, they'll put a lot, that's where they put a lot of their comps and family and friends and things like that. Back in the old days, man, that, that was nobody sat near the camera. Cause if they sit in the row or they sit, if they sit within five rows of the camera, they could shake the camera and shit like that. So camera kills were bigger and nobody sat around there. Well, and nobody's going to sit around and miss next week's episode. It's all about the undertaker. One of the most iconic figures in the history of professional wrestling. We can't wait to talk about him in long form. And we want to know if you have any questions, so please go ask him on Twitter. It's at Pritchard show. He is at Bruce Pritchard. I am at, Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. And we are bringing you the undertaker 95, 96, 97 next week. The week after that, you're going to be treated to no way out 1998. So there won't be an active poll this week, but you've got your next two weeks planned out. Bruce, what might we talk about with undertaker 95, 96 and 97 next week? Well, we're going to be talking about what I like to call his pirate phase of undertaker, his dissension from the top of Madison square garden and just kind of the funny story of him sitting up there all night and wondering what the hell that may be. But it's kind of the evolution from 
you know, the old Undertaker kind of into a newer Undertaker right before we get into the American Badass. So a lot of fun years and good times with the Undertaker. Tune in next week. If you've got a question, don't forget to hit us up on Twitter at Pritchard Show. If you'd like to see more of Bruce's collection, ask him some questions about main event or just see his story of hooking back up with Pat Patterson this past week in Philadelphia. Check it out over on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle our official YouTube channel, which you need to go hit the subscribe button on right now is youtube.com forward slash something to wrestle. If you're listening to us on YouTube and it's not on that channel, shame on you. Someone's ripping us off. It's free. The show is free. Please go subscribe to the real one. It would be a great favor to Bruce and I is youtube.com forward slash something to wrestle. And don't forget, we're giving away a t-shirt in honor of today's episode. It's all about Friday noon's main event. And we're doing that on Instagram. It's instagram.com forward slash Pritchard show. So check out Pritchard show on Instagram for your chance to win that T and other future giveaways. We've still got those shirts on sale for you at brucepritchard.com, including three brand new ones. My favorite, of course, King of all podcasts, colossal tussle sounds like a rib, but it's too good to be true. Bruce will call you whenever you pick up a shirt there. Of course, we can still help you save some money over at SaveWithBruce.com, and tickets are on sale right now for Las Vegas at notarib.com. And don't forget to come check us out in South Florida for St. Patrick's day. It's a once in a lifetime opportunity for unlimited beer. Gotta be a rib. It's boxofgimmicks.com. And we'll see you next week right here for Undertaker 95, 96, 97 on something to wrestle with. I've done it. Right here, Hulk. Here it is. Bruce Pritchard. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.